we officially like, start? Yeah. Are we starting? Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. So this is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. So the terrible lie of feminism. Is what? Well. Because <laughs> it's not a question mark. Right? It's a statement. Yeah, it's as true. As proposed. Yes. The ter so let me rephrase that. The terrible lie of feminism. Um, it is a terrible lie. I. What is? Feminism. I think she's really, I think we need to define it for everyone. She is. That's a big problem, I think, with a lot of these conversations. It's a huge problem. People work with different definitions and they talk past each other and they get upset at each other when they don't actually understand what the other person is trying to say. Right. So she's really hitting on third wave feminism. However, she shows that like the roots of the um, emancipation of women did stem from issues. Like there are just issues with all the waves in different fronts. But there's no doubt that Alice von Hildebrand thinks that women are dignified and should be treated with dignity and equality to men. So women get human rights? Okay, so we're getting in the human rights talk. Well, I'm just asking, <laughs> do, do women get rights? Do women get rights? Uh, well, we all have rights by natural law that we need to be given. And if we are not given those natural law rights, then it goes against what God has destined for us. Yeah, no, there's just my, my, it seems like, no, I'm sure there's plenty of conversations I'm not aware of, but in my own anecdotal experience, it seems like a lot of the questions or fervor or anger, even that surrounds this topic is typically couched in that kind of language about the human like, rights language. Yeah. Like, equal rights for women, that sort of thing, right. because it's, it would seem like, okay, well, if you're against feminism, then it means you must be against women having autonomy or having rights or being able to do this, that, or being treated thing. with dignity yeah. or uh, being paid equally for a job that they're doing to a man, not being sexually harassed in the workplace, all of these things. My audience doesn't know this. So I'm just going to say this really fast that my background, um, I would have labeled myself as a feminist in university. I would have labeled myself as a Catholic feminist. That's something I don't believe you can actually do at this point. But I, back then, studied political science and my background was in human rights, specifically women's rights in the Middle East. So you see, if you follow me on Instagram, you can see how much God has worked on my heart. <laughs> right, so you no longer believe women deserve human rights. I believe that women... <laughs> deserve so actually it's a human rights issues in in full uh -huh. okay so yeah. like the issue we have to then we have to talk about humans i literally wrote a paper about this the catholic church and human rights we need to look at natural law that's what we need to do we need to look from the eyes of the church we all are dignified and we need to um see things from god's eyes but as human rights is a created thing by human beings so is that mm. is that what you're getting at? Or yeah, you... yeah. No, I'm just trying to like clarify our terminology okay. going into this chapter, right? That that's all really because it's if you're working with there's certain conversations where it seems like everyone's kind of on the same page with the language that's used, and then other conversations, especially ones that have that that can be prone to higher emotions because they hit closer to home for people. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will work with different definitions. And so if you want to come to understanding between in a conversation, in a difficult conversation like that, you have to make sure you're working with the same terms. So you're talking about the same thing. And then you can actually get somewhere. 
Because if you if you're working with, oh, I think feminism is X, mm-hmm. and the other person, well, I think feminism is Y, then you're not going to get anywhere because you're not even on the same page, right? So I just want to make sure we're sort of working with the right terms and thinking the Let's same way. Let's be super clear because this clear. was yeah, a exactly. conversation. Mm-hmm. So, Josh, define feminism. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's still, that's why I was asking you because I feel like it's I feel like there are too many different ways of there's almost a sense in which from my perspective it almost doesn't really mean much anymore because there's so many different definitions of it so i almost feel like that the word itself may not even be very helpful and you kind of have to talk about what you're actually thinking so instead of saying i'm against feminism i don't think it's very helpful language you can say well i'm against this specific thing or i'm for this specific thing i think that what what you're saying is definitely helpful but i think feminism does have a true definition yeah and it well i think if we go through this chapter especially um in there's a there's a there's a quote from Kierkegaard she uses that seems really inflammatory and so i think if we talk about that i think that will actually get us to maybe what we're talking about but that's maybe like a, a couple topics down the road. Perfect. We are going to get after this chapter. So after this chapter that makes everyone mad, we're going to, it's or happy, you know, depending on who you are. Um, but the next chapter gets to like a really positive look at, like she's going from this negative light of looking at the problem to what to do about it and what we are meant to be as women so um and men you know but she does have a particular focus on women i will say in this book um because i think women shape society we have a particular power to shape society because we're the ones raising people so like at home you know that that's our role so we have this particular power so it's really important when we're shaping culture and to think about culture to be women to be truly women so Mm -hmm. we're going to get into this but one thing without a doubt i so i 100 percent agree with alice von hildebrand i have a big problem with feminism but right away this is this is what i want to point out she shows how significant women are and how they're not meant to be just um over sexualized used and just you know having a like these passing relationships with like all of these things she's saying that women are significant and they um and and that this is about the family in the end this is about having a strong family having a woman being a woman and a man being a man so that was like my first my first note Mm -hmm. yeah what so what are your thoughts on this chapter well the the first thing that i think is important to point out from our particular perspective is what she mentions on page 20, where she talks about how it's actually the church, it's actually the Christian faith that has contributed most in the world to the exaltation of women and the recognition of their genuinely equal dignity. And I think that that's something that I think it would be, at least it seems pretty obvious to me, most people who would be opposed to the church's view of men and women would push back against that claim, I mm-hmm. think. But it seems pretty significant that in the history of the world, it's actually, it's Christianity that did that has done the most for, you know, what we call like the marginalized, right? Those on the margins that yeah. tend to be weaker in one sense, right? Or more vulnerable. Or something yeah you know what i mean um and so it seems like it's actually 
the Christian faith that has done the most, beginning, obviously, in Israel with the revelation in Genesis, that both men and women are created in the image of God, and then all the way through into the Christian tradition, where the Christian tradition has been very clear that even though women might be physically weaker sometimes than men, Right. It's, we don't have to get into Yes, I'm pretty sure like women have a higher pain tolerance than men on average, though, um, <laughs> for, for good reason. Yeah. The church has always been like super clear that men and women alike are equal in this, their spiritual aspect. So their intellect, their will, their ability to be good and holy. Yes. And, and we see it, though, in all throughout scripture, we see it in the saints and um different just heroic women stepping up and the the lord calling these wonderful women um to be exalted yeah and then even in even in the institutions that the church has invented and created right think about like hospitals for instance mm-hmm. right like it, it's there's the various religious orders throughout history have this, those dedicated to teaching and medicine and nursing and care have all the church has always been yeah sure you know if, if this is something that particular women decide this is what i'm going to do i'm going to go do this then have at it right yeah. you know what i mean it's yeah. what other instead i mean think about and a lot of people i think don't probably associate religious orders with this particular topic of the emancipation of women right mm-hmm. if anything religious orders seem from the outside to be kind of the opposite of that but I mean, women in the church were setting up their own communities and their own lives and their own homes, you know, living together and having authority over one another, right? Doing things together mm-hmm. in a way that you didn't really find anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, so that's sort of looking at it from the church's perspective. And um, I think something, actually, I just want to say this, this came to mind, a quote by Alice von Hilgerman is that she just, when she talks about these things, she prefers to use not, you know, because some people will say, well, this is feminism. Like if you're exalting women in this way, like this is feminism. Sure. That's part of what I was uh, mentioning and, with the terminology. And she's saying, yeah. no, say femininity, say this is femininity. Why are we saying feminism? Um, and it's, it's because we need to look at history. We need to look at tradition. We need to look at what the saints are saying. Great. Um, and then she's also quoting quite a few different literary geniuses talking about these things. So GK Chesterton on the, um, the bottom of page 20, she quotes him saying the feminist is one who dislikes the chief feminine characteristics. Okay. There's a clear definition. So that's kind of what we're working with here when we're talking about that. And I think like, if we see that this is what has shaped the tradition in like viewing like the definition of feminism, we need to actually hold fast to that. We can't be making up our own definitions just as time moves on, just to make everyone pleased and happy with us. And that's the problem I think Mm -hmm. in modernity is like, we're trying to make everyone happy. So we're like, Oh, well maybe we'll just water that down or we're kind of feminists in this way. And, you know, but it's like, that doesn't work. We need to hold fast to what the word actually meant, means, and is. Um, like these things can't be shaped and changed just because the times change. Like it's just, then what do we, then then what is the definition of anything? It, it becomes problematic. Yeah, there's a, it's it's difficult because what you're saying is definitely true. And then you have to also figure out a way 
to talk to your contemporaries and figure out who don't how, agree how yeah. they understand the language being used right because right? on the one hand you're right that there are certain true things that don't change mm -hmm. obviously and then on the other hand well if the culture changes and they're using language a particular way you have to just it's sort of like a prudential decision like you know do i continue talking this way because it's true or do I try and find a way to express this particular true thing in a way that my opponent or those, you know, someone who's really misunderstanding me will understand, right? And so there's, but I, I think that what you're saying is just fundamentally true. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think we need to hold fast to it and then try to understand our audience when we're discussing these things and gently plant the seeds. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Yeah, I mean, and then on the... Right, the next page she's talking about this um she's talking about that i think we mentioned it last week this question about identity and equality and distinctions mm -hmm. and we mentioned that in the modern west we've been so concerned and in many times rightly so about various aspects of legitimate discrimination in in different ways right especially yeah. when it comes to um and even when it comes to right it's it's you know feminism didn't just come out of the vacuum right there's definitely plenty of times and places in the past where women are looked at a certain way or different races are looked at in a certain way mm -hmm. and there's been a kind of progress in the sense that you have just you know sort of basic human nature at least in those who are good trying to see the goodness and equality in everyone. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of became allergic to this language of being, you know, separate, but equal, because mm -hmm. it's like, well, if we're, if we're, if we're separate, we're never really equal. Mm -hmm. And so to be equal, we can't be separate anymore. We have to kind of, everyone has to be kind of the same. And that is true in one way, in the sense that we're all of equal, equal dignity, dignity. Yeah. but it's, it's it very easily and very quickly. And it's obviously, it seems obvious to me, that what it's become is, well, no one can be different anymore. And mm. everyone has to be exactly the same. So when she's talking about feminism being a kind of parody, a kind of sort of women parodying and making being sort of a crude parody of what it means to be a man. Uh-huh. That seems to be a lot of what at least recent modern feminism has been. Like, oh, I can do everything that a man can do. Yes. I should get everything a man has. I should right. be able to do and go and have whatever the man can do and go and have. And then it's become, well, it seems like there's just a kind of grasping at what it means to be a man. And then you get questions, but well, what is, is a man just having sort of free reign to do whatever he wants? Because I would say, well, if, if that's sort of your definition of what it means to be a man, to just have the power to do what you want, mm -hmm. I, I think that's a caricature and a distortion of what it means to be masculine in the first place. Right. Right. Because that's a sort of real distortion of what power is. Right. Because if it's if you just view men as having power and wanting power and trying to exercise power, well, that's that's wrong from the beginning. Mm -hmm. so it seems i don't know yeah that's really interesting yeah and so the next note we had was the kierkegaard quote so 
Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, maybe I'll read it. Yeah. Like in full, because when when you when you hear it, when it first hits your ears, mm-hmm. I think from mo- most people will really kind of recoil from the language he uses. Mm-hmm. But then if we go back to that conversation about terminology and what particular words mean, I think it will become clear. Okay. So I'll, I'll read this. It's from, so it's Soren Kierkegaard. It's from a work entitled Either Or. All right. So this is the quote. It's, it's relatively short, but I'll, I'll just read it in full. So he says, I hate all talk about the emancipation of woman. God forbid that it ever may come to pass. I cannot tell you with what pain this thought is able to pierce my heart, nor what passionate exasperation, what hate I feel toward everyone who gives vent to such talk. No base seducer could think out a more dangerous doctrine for woman. For once he has made her believe this, she is entirely in his power, at the mercy of his will. She can be nothing for man except a prey to his whims, whereas woman, she can be everything for him. So on the surface, at least in the first half of that quotation, right, it sounds kind of like the opposite of what we've been talking about, that the church would want to say about what women are and should be and should have. Right. So if you just if you just wandered around the street and you talked about how you don't want women to be emancipated, right? And that you that you hate such talk. No one would, everyone would sort of look at you like you were crazy, right? It'd be like, you know, women should not be free is basically what that sounds like. But what he's talking See, about. I'm, I'm saying that hesitant. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no. Because I don't mind. <laughs> well, right, but because because you understand what he's talking about, yeah. right? Exactly. But that's what I mean. Like, it's, it sounds really strange. And it's, you could say, okay, well, it's just, you know, it's just sort of this weird Danish, you know, early 20th century, uh, you know, celibate philosopher yeah. guy who like has no idea what he's talking about or something. Right. Um, but what he's talking about is it's the same thing that, that Chesterton talks about. And I'm sure I'd, like most people would have, have heard this quote or I, I don't remember what it is word for word exactly, but it's something to the effect of, you know, the modern world calls a woman free when she sort of submits and serves and does whatever her boss at the office asks mm-hmm. and yet sees her as enslaved if she does the same thing for her husband and children at home. Right. Right. Which is just, if you think about it, it's kind of a bizarre dynamic that yep. you'd see a woman serving a man at work in an office and think, Oh, that's a free woman. And then see a woman serving and, you know, doing the same exact thing in her own home that she's helped create and build for her own, you know, beloved spouse and children and think oh well, that woman's sort of enslaved and that sort of thing so that's this is the kind of thing that he's talking about yes. so he's talking about this kind of false emancipation where men create a world in which they can have access to and power over women in their everyday lives which is why at the end of this quotation he talks about this kind of emancipation again this is sort of the key you know the key this kind is yeah exactly right this kind of emancipation is about making women at putting women at the mercy of unscrupulous men right so instead of being around men who love and care for them Mm -hmm. a father a husband brothers children friends right 
it's about putting them at the mercy of people who have absolutely no care or well care for their good at all. And then we wonder why we're hardening our hearts so much these days, right? Mm -hmm. Well, because we're not meant to be treated in the way that we often are these days, you know, where we have to harden, we have to like man up in a way to face the world and deal with the problems that. Yeah. And without knowing, without knowing too much about care, we're not knowing too much else about Kierkegaard. It's, it seems like it's, it goes back to the question of the, like we said, you know, okay, men and women, equal dignity, but in in a certain sense, women have a kind of a unique dignity as human creatures. And so from what he's talking about, right, essentially it's, you know, it's, it's bad enough for a man to exploit another man mm-hmm. in the world, right? Mm-hmm. That's bad enough, mm-hmm. but to exploit a woman seems even more crass yeah, because of the special kind of creature that she is, right? Not to, you know, denig- you know, not to denigrate men, but at the same time, right? I think there's a reason in Revelation that a woman is the last piece of creation. She's kind of the crown, sort of the crown jewel of what God wants to do in the world. Right? And so it's no accident, right? It's who's the highest creature he creates, a woman. What is the church? Feminine. And so there's all these sort of excellences of women that you don't find in men. And so it seems like what Kierkegaard is getting at is, right, it's bad enough to exploit other men in the world right. this way and to right. put them at, you know, the mercy of other men. But to do it to a woman seems to be even more disastrous in yeah. a sense for the world. Yeah. I really, on page 26 at the bottom, she says, our society is waging war on femininity. This is so true. Like this is happening right now. And it's because if you take down the woman, you can take down the family. If you, you know, take down the mother, then you don't have, then this, you know, other people are raising the children then. Um, And obviously there are situations where this needs to happen. There's a need for it, especially in our world where, we are facing so much, so much economic disaster, you know, like where, where it becomes a real struggle. But like, I think I was saying I was, I think this is a really important point. So I I just want to like say this here, because we talked about this the other day, um, that we need to be able to look at the highest goods and how God created the family and what the family is supposed to be. And we need to be able to see these ideals of what marriage should be of what the relationship man and woman should be what a mother is meant to be um, so that we can strive for those perfections in our lives the way the lord is asking each of us individually in our particular lives and calling and in our circumstances you know because all our circumstances are going to look really different but but i I compare it to my way of giving birth. I have to give birth via C-section, but the best way of giving birth is by natural birth. And I need to be able to say that comfortably, that that's, you know, this is how God has asked me to give birth is via C-section, but the highest good, a higher way, a, a better way to give birth is to have a natural vaginal birth, right? And so being able to look at, what these you know what we are called to be these ideals comfortably is really important in this conversation yeah i think that that's important in all kinds of ways 
when you look at life through a Christian perspective, right? There's all kinds of things that are, there's, I mean, the, the world is composed of a hierarchy of goods. Some things are better than others, mm-hmm. but, you know, using the, you know, the metaphors and the language of St. Therese, for instance, right? Not everyone is called to the same good. Not everyone's called to be the rose. Some people are just daisies, you know, mm-hmm. on the side of the road, mm-hmm. right? Everyone is called to their particular good. And so the best thing that you can do in your life is live and find out what your particular good is, right? What has God given you and called you to? What has, what gifts has he given? Because he gives some greater gifts than others, right? Like you're talking about with your, your births, right? An objectively higher good would be to just have all natural births because it would just be a lot easier and less painful and and, and natural just, and normal just, yeah, and what a better, woman's body yeah yeah right do. yeah but that's impossible so you've embraced a lesser good but it's the good that you've been given and so exactly. there's kind of sacrifices you have to make but that in I your own to... life are better just like we talk about the difference between right like marriage and religious life Right. A lot of people sort of can get yes. that confused. Right. Yes. If I, if as I, as a married person say, oh, I chose a lesser good. They'll think, oh, like, do you not think this is good? It's kind of like, insulting yeah. to you. Don't let your wife hear you yeah. say that. Right. And that like, wouldn't threaten me at all because yeah, it because, is a lesser good. Right. Objectively. Right. Though, not from me. Right. Because this is what I was called to. And so it's kind of, you know, God basically says, you know, will you accept what I give you, even if it's not the highest good? Yes. And your best good is going to be to say, Yes, I accept that. Yeah. And I know this is a a bit of a caveat from the conversation, but I think it really is important. Is that the right word? Um, Caveat? Yeah. Tangent caveat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think this is really important because it, it can make us just sort of just sit back and be comfortable with looking at like, what is, what is like the family model supposed to look like? Like what is femininity supposed to look like because she's going in here on the war on femininity on page 26 she's talking about how it's become such um like with modernity and um science and machines like all of these um and technology it's all very masculine and it's brought real genuine goods to the world we don't want to think that right well because men are good like these technical thoughts are good and stuff but Sure, but what I mean, like, like te- it's like technology, which we I think she gets into a little bit later that I want to mention just briefly. I don't want this, you know, another episode to go super long, but yeah, um, yeah, something like technology, it is kind of like a double-edged sword in a sense because there's certain in certain sense in which it's it gives you more right. the The whole project of the Enlightenment of the last few centuries has been how do we gain power over nature? Mm-hmm. That's the real question. How do we have power over the created world? How do we have power over nature? And in certain ways, that's a really good thing, right? You, you know, the you know, women don't die in childbirth nearly as much because right. we have great modern medicine and all kind, like all kinds of things like that. Right. And at the same time, you th- like look at the different horrors that technology and medicine have created for us to deal with when you have imprudent, unwise, immoral people using it. Right. 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 Um, but her point here with like all these, like the technology and the materialism and, and all of this is that she says that mysteries are no longer needed and femininity is wrapped up in mystery. And we'll see that in the next chapter. Like that is a quality of the feminine genius. Interesting. Um, 
because you're, yeah. you're trying to figure everything out and solve all the puzzles and all of these things. So then you lose the mystery and the mystery is really important. And she goes into even the traditional mass and how, you know, the priest was facing East um, and, and how, and what that meant and, and these deep transcendent realities sure. um, that we can lose when we lose a, a love of mystery. Yeah. I think like one of the characteristics of modernity seems to be the loss of symbolism because we think we can find everything out and so the idea that you need a symbol like a stand-in for something else mm -hmm. this idea that like one truth could be mediated by some other kind of thing seems to us kind of silly and superfluous and backward like well, why wouldn't you just want to know the information like what good could a kind what could what good could a symbol be what good could an image or a metaphor be and it's you know part of the reason we don't appreciate the arts as much either like what well like what's what good is art i mean what does that do for me because we yeah. have this purely utilitarian mindset about things being, well, just make it work, make it efficient, make it this, make it that, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. The next big thing that I saw was um, it starts on page 29, uh. but then goes forward in the next page or two where she talks about, and this is not something that is unique to her. I think a number of different uh, great thinkers and saints of the last century or so have kind of seen this and pointed out it's we live in an age not so we live in an age of poverty but in a lot of areas especially in the modern world where there's a lot of money there's kind of a different kind of poverty and she talks about these three deprivations right the deprivation of love the deprivation of silence and the deprivation of personal contact which i guess is kind of related to the first one right, right? um and it just seems to be a really poignant this almost seems tangential in a way, right? It's not it's like perfectly integrated into what she's talking about elsewhere, but I think it's more about, it's less about the feminism question and more about just the human condition in that mm -hmm. sense where, and I think what I was thinking of is, I think it's a, it's like a popularly attributed to mother Teresa. who yes. talks about, right. The poverty of the modern world being the poverty of um, love. Mm -hmm. right the poverty of like personal relationship and it's a kind of poverty of loneliness yeah in that sense yeah where and there's been plenty of studies on this not just like as far as like love and marriage go right where we have less marriages and less children and all and people are getting married later and later but like people just you know you think of look up like some modern surveys or things people that say they genuinely don't even have one real friend has just skyrocketed in recent decades yeah and i'm sure that the recent recent years of you know the you know technology and uh you know covid lockdowns and all kinds of things that just piece by piece and brick by brick kind of take away our ability to interact with each other in genuinely human ways has been really detrimental and then this idea of probably not something we really even think about deprivation of silence things are always <laughs> always so noisy mm -hmm. right there's always some new distraction even when you take real care to attempt to keep those out of your life and there's just always there's always some new thing you can distract yourself with so that you don't have to be alone with your own thoughts mm -hmm. and so these three deprivations really hinder our ability to kind of it seems like they hinder everyone's ability to grow and be genuinely human. And then obviously, like we were talking about last week, right? If 
we're trying to deal with the break of all these harmonies between ourselves and between each other. They just, they can't help but contribute to all of this, to the, the specific problem we've been talking about this whole time. Yes. And I think too, what she's sort of tying it into with femininity is women have a way with the personal. So we are particularly gifted in the personal contact in creating silence or not and creating an environment of love so like that's something that's like a gift of woman that that we naturally have that we can give the world like we we want that personal contact we want those relationships um but we're in this this climate where it's it is becoming more and more lonely the next thing um and I have, I think, just two more specific things. Obviously, I mean, if you if you can right, read the whole chapter, but if in 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 my own mind, two more things stand out. I think the first is what she talks about on page thirty three, where she says, you know, feminists forget that under the aspect of eternity, to be wife and mother, to create a home, to be there, to give love, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, is what's actually illuminating and is what will actually last essentially is what she's talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's something that now, obviously she's talking about women in this sense. Um, but it's, it's true for everyone in that sense where really, when we think about, it seems like when we think about vocation is where this really comes into play and it really comes into also, it, it brings in this sort of very old, you know, very old sort of, Catholic mode of piety where you're meant to meditate on the four last things, right? On death, judgment, heaven, hell. Think about your life, right? Since the whole, even, even there's, there's even kind of a contemporary way of talking about it, right? You know, live every day like it's your last. Mm -hmm. you know, this, this is really a deeply Christian thing to do, right? It's just, if you live every day thinking about these things, right? Thinking about the end of your life, you'll order your life in a particular way because you'll know, okay, well, that's my destination. That's where I want to get. So how do I get there? Right. Mm -hmm. If you're kind of, if you just get in the car and start driving without any idea of where you want to go, you'll end up just wandering. And so the same thing is true with your life, right? If you have no idea of where you want to go and what you want to be, and you'll have no idea how to actually get there. What's actually important. If you actually meditate on the four last things, you'll figure out what's actually important in life. Yeah. And so this idea that she mentions here, right? This, this idea that women could forget that certain things are important when they're failing to take eternity into mind is really important. Cause you could, you just ask the question, you're saying, well, what's actually important? What am I going to remember? What do I want? What do I want to look back on at the end of my life? Or, you know, what do I want my memories hopefully in heaven to be right? Do you know, what's actually going to, what am I going to bring with me? That's most important. Is it going to be, you know, all, all the years that I spent trying to get ahead on my own, is it going to be a particular promotion I got or some, my bank account, or is it going to be the fact that, you know, I, I found someone to love. I bore children into the world. I had genuine friends. I took care of my parents, all of these real relational things that are so important. Mm -hmm. And obviously it's, it's not, that's not just a feminine thing, right? That's some, that would seem to me to be a masculine thing too, right? Like I might, my job right might be important at the moment because it's what allows us to you know put food on the table right mm -hmm. so it's not that my job's not important right and, you know it's, some people have really 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 important jobs that's not what i'm trying to say but it's 
what do I want to look back on, you know, when I'm old, hopefully, right? Mm -hmm. Is it like how many hours I put in a particular week to get a particular thing done? I hope not, right? It's a hope it's going to be, I, you know, I spent all of this time trying to be with my children, right? Trying to take care of my wife, right? All of these things, it's, you know, related to the people in my life that actually mean something. Mm. Yeah. Looking, looking at souls and people and their whole person, and then looking at the jobs we are given and putting them in their place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a beautiful way to like what you described as a man to like consider these things, you know, um, and your role. Yeah, because it's the, the the same reason that women are being tricked and it's thinking certain things are important. Right. There's almost a sense in which men kind of have to think about it a little bit more because it's just sort of more ingrained in us, which mm-hmm. is this, which is the reason that women think they're important. Right. All of these worldly things they might be important for a particular reason, but there's a reason Paul, in his letters in the New Testament, recommends not getting married because he says if you're married, you're going to be thinking about worldly things. Because you're going to need to. You're going to mm-hmm. think about, well, how do I take care of this person? How do I take care of that person? Mm-hmm. How am I going to, you know, you're going to be thinking about, you know, you're going to be thinking about how to take care of your wife and how to, how to make your wife happy, right? How to take care of your children. So he says, well, you know, so so don't get married, right? He's, you know, if you're not married, stay unmarried. You can think about the things of God. You won't have to think about so many worldly things. Mm-hmm. And so the, in a certain sense, there, there's a way in which men have to really think about this in particular because it's so kind of just under the surface it's just sort of ingrained into us well these particular things are important get this better job make sure you get that promotion work overtime Mm -hmm. you know miss your kids birthdays and you know dance recitals and all these things because it means that you'll you know make your boss happy and you can make more money and get ahead at a certain point it's like what's the money for right you know what's the worldly status for because it can start off as well i want to make more money because i want to take care of my kids but if you're not careful It can go overboard. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you think, oh, great. Look at all this money I made for my kids who I don't know now. Mm. So, yeah. So it's not just like, like, I I don't want (laughs) to, I don't want to be a man and derail the conversation and start talking about men, right? In the feminist. Oh, stop. But, (laughs) right. It's, it's all, it's all important, right? It's always like you're saying, it just goes back to this aspect of relationality, right? Who are you taking care of? I think, yeah. And so in light of women, I think for me, what I figured out at the end of college, when I realized, okay, I'm not going to be a Carmelite nun. And I have this career, this political career I can have in front of me with, you know, the government, like, are we talking too long? (laughs) Um, (laughs) With like the government, but I'm like, okay, the Lord is calling me to marriage. And I remember sitting down with you and saying, if I'm called to marriage, I want to be a mom. And if I'm going to be a mom, I don't want to work outside the home. I want to be present to my children. I want to be there for them. Mm -hmm. And I remember us specifically sitting down, having that conversation and making an agreement. We were in the cafeteria at Mount St. Mary's. I don't remember this conversation. Okay. We had this conversation. We were engaged and you, you said, I will do whatever it takes. And you just sort of made that promise to me. Like I will provide for you. And, and that was, that was a huge conversation. And you have done that through thick and thin, like you've been working multiple jobs, like all of that to make sure I didn't have to leave the home because that was something we decided from the start was what was important to us. I, I want to be 
with the children. Sure. So that's going to be a priority. Yeah. And I think that's what she's saying here is that should be normalized. There are absolutely times when that can't happen. Mm -hmm. There are absolutely outliers. No one is saying yeah. otherwise. Well, that's an important point about, and again, sort of just a, a mini tangent, trying to keep it as quick, you know, 90 seconds or something. Yeah. A lot of people will look at the old Catholic encyclicals, like late, like late 19th, early 20th century on like economic and domestic questions about men and women. And they'll sort of mischaracterize a little bit what the early popes were saying. And they'll say, oh, well, you know, the, the church teaches that women shouldn't work, should not work outside the home. Mm -hmm. And there's actually not anything that they ever say. What, and I think it's, I think it's Leo the 13th of Rerum Novarum, but it could be one of the other socials teaching encyclicals. Um, so don't, you know, hold me to it. Everyone's looking it up he right now. <laughs> well, they should, they should go read it. They should yeah. go find their own stuff. But mm -hmm. he, what he says is not women are, you know, women shouldn't work outside the home. What he really says is, right, women should not feel obligated mm -hmm. to work outside the home because they should have the right to be at home with their children if that's what they want and can, and can actually make happen. Right. So what he criticizes is a, a, pol a political and economic system that demands and essentially forces women, women outside the home, which right. is a, a situation that we're in right now. Yeah. Exa and, and so that's, yeah, exactly. That, that's yeah. what he's criticizing. That was 120 years ago. Right. I really believe that women have a right to the home. That's so if we're going to talk about rights here, mm -hmm. <laughs> we go met to human rights, right? Mm -hmm. No, natural law, like all these things. Like if we look at the model of the family, I believe women have a right to the home and, and how society is set up doesn't always allow for that. And different circumstances certainly are emerged. Now she talks about Joan of Arc on page 34 and how her calling was an extraordinary calling. And that's something I think we need to, I think this is in all wisdom, recognizing as women that there are extraordinary callings. And also simultaneously understanding what should be normalized, what should be supported, right? Like mothers should be supported in taking care of their children. Mothers shouldn't be forced to send their children to daycare or in the UK it's nursery. Like mothers should not be pushed into this. Mothers need to be with their children. <laughs> Like, this is what their children, this is the highest good. This is the ideal. This is what the children need. This is what the home needs. This is how we raise and form souls. We don't throw them off on other people if we don't have to. Yeah, well, that's part of what's, what I think is really important that has sort of emerged, especially with a lot of clarity in, in recent Catholic thinking on the family is that children are the common good of the family and so i mean someone has to take care of the kids so if someone's going to take care of them right try and create a world in which they can be cared for the people that love them the right. most the parents the family the yeah. the in in-laws the grandma you know grandma and grandpa like yeah because it does take a village and... you don't you don't want to yeah. create a you know it's it's the whole idea of, well, all you need is the nuclear family, parents and children isolated in their own little tiny home all by themselves. That's created a kind of disaster where people don't want to have kids because raising kids is hard, right? So you want to have an extended network of family and friends who can be there if, if possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To help. Definitely. But you, yeah, the ideal situation is to be raising children in love and to have people that really love them and care about them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah.
So anyways, I got really passionate about that. Sure. Let's go to the last toy. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. No, my last point is it's more of kind of, it's a, probably a more of a philosophical one. And this idea, she talks about uh, Dante and the Divine Comedy, and she talks about the difference between Dante and Beatrice. And she has, um, <laughs> I thought it was kind of like a funny quote. She said, you know, she says, had Beatrice been a feminist, I have my doubts she could have kindled Dante's genius. Mm-hmm. So this idea that if she if she had a particular mindset, would she have genuine? Would she have been this almost unparalleled object of devotion that mm-hmm. you see Dante uh, portray in the Divine Comedy? And she and she goes on to talk about the different kinds of things that men and women do and create. And in my own mind, boiled down, what she really is saying is that women embody things and men craft Mm -hmm. so in other words men create outside of themselves and women create within themselves and so that's Mm -hmm. true about children first of all obviously right children women create children within themselves Mm -hmm. in a way that men don't Mm -hmm. but what she does is she essentially extends that reality to a lot of other aspects of what it means to be men and women and so this so there's a lot of things that you talk about, well, women are often concerned with embodying particular ideals, with being certain things, being a certain way. Whereas men tend to craft, to build, to create outside themselves. So it's almost a way in which who men and women are at the fundamental natural level Mm -hmm. extends itself out into a lot of other different ways. And through the ages, that's also been a kind of argument for fittingness in why we refer to God in masculine terms as well. Decide to because God, we are not the same kind of thing as God. Right. Right. So we're not, if you, if we talked about God in feminine terms, you might be tempted to what we would call pantheism, that God, everything is kind of in God. And God is kind of all things in that sense. Mm-hmm. But this insistence that divine revelation gives us that Christ comes and calls God father emphasizes the fact that he, that God creates outside of himself, mm-hmm. that there's a genuine distance from God, mm-hmm. even though we're his, we're his creation. We come from him. There is still a distance in the same way that a father creates a child and there is a certain distance Mm-hmm. that doesn't exist for the mother. Yeah, that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. That's that's very cool. My one other note that I had was um, on page 38, she talks about a sexless society and that essentially destroying things. Um, leading, She says, inevitably leading to religious, moral, psychological, and physical disasters. And I think we are facing this very much now you know with this gender neutral like obsession like everyone has to be the same like you said um right we change like changing birth certificates to say like parent one and parent two yes not father and, and the one like yeah. the birth birthing parent or you know like these like very strange things um it takes away from our identity and when we take away from our identity and don't have a sense of who we are we're the world feels chaotic it's a i think it's a very tricky thing that the devil is doing because you you feel more alone than ever if you don't know who you are 
Yeah. And there's, again, going back to the arts, right? There's, if, if everything is leveled, if everything is the same, if all human beings are sort of gender neutral, sexless, just you know, creatures, if you think about music, for instance, right, that's just, you, you play one note, mm-hmm. that's not beautiful, right? Beauty is in the harmony and in the symphony. So when things are different and yet go together well. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's something that is. And that's what makes something beautiful. Yeah. That's something really fundamental to creation as well. There's an interesting question mm-hmm. in the Summa and St. Thomas says, well, if what God creates is meant to reflect him mm-hmm. and God is one, why didn't God just create one thing? Mm-hmm. And he yeah. says, well, God is one thing because he's infinite. He's beyond being. He has all perfections in himself. Created things can't do that. And so it's most fitting for the beauty of the world, for there to be an endless variety of things that all reflect God's essence in their own way. So so in other words, basically what he's saying is it's more beautiful for for things in the world to be different than for them not to be. And I think the same thing applies to human beings. That's exactly right. And I think that's a perfect way to like, to wrap up that part of the conversation. I do think to just wrap up this chapter though, and to sort of look at feminism and look at the problem of it, because we're talking very particularly about women and, you know, women outside the home and women working and all of these things. Something I just want to wrap this up with is um, after the, you know, prior to the industrial revolution, women were working constantly. Women were working on farms. Women were helping with the shop downstairs in their house, but they were with their children and doing their womanly work and doing their, their work. So raising children, making clothes, doing the wash, going to market, right. et cetera. Et cetera. And we see Everything. this with, even with St. Zelie and stuff, she would wait till her children went to bed and she would do her lace work at night till 11 p.m. and then wake up for 5 a.m. and go to daily mass. Like all of these things, like women can, it's not that Alice von Hildebrand is saying, or femininity, this, this idea of femininity is you can't do any sort of work. It's it's that it has to be ordered to the family, you know? And, um, and that's what's most important. And I think in our modern times, because, you know, it, it, I maybe 10 years ago, I would say, oh, like no one has a farm anymore. So, you know, and like we have all these machines doing our housework and everything like that. So like start a hobby or whatever. But a lot of women are going back. And I think this is very telling to homesteading, for instance. And um, a lot of women are creating these beautiful Etsy shops and using their talents for these different things to like build up the domestic church or, um, or, you, you know, using their talents to like make dresses or like all these sorts of things I see happening with these moms who are staying home and they're giving to their family in this way. They're, mm-hmm. they're using extra time, this hobby time that otherwise, you know, um, would like, which is a good, and, and that's, that's not, yeah, like I, that is part of femininity is using our gifts in these ways, whether it be a hobby of, you know, crocheting or creating the Etsy shop or homesteading. Um, just or, doing stuff on your own, like with your own hands. Right. Because I think the 20th century gardening erased a lot of that because yeah. we had so much innovation so fast with technology 
that you didn't have you everything could be done and automated and everything for you you had your washing machine and your drying machine and your fridge and your supermarket and everything and so you could just sort of buy whatever you needed and automate everything and everything sort of got taken out of your hands and so over the generations a lot of real genuine knowledge of homemaking and just the way things were kind of got lost but it seems like what, what you're saying is you're seeing a lot of people kind of rediscover the joy of doing these things in their own home there's on themselves such a revival going well, the, on. yeah because yeah. there's there's a lot and I, I i wish i could remember who it was but there's this this idea that the best way to build up your home is to shift the family mindset from being a place of consumption to being a place of creation. So instead of being the home, just being where you consume things, right? Consume the food that you ordered, consume the media, consume the television, Mm. right? Create things, right? Make Make the food, make the food, right? Play the sport yourself. Don't just watch the the instrument, build the thing yourself or don't just buy it. So, and, and obviously, based on your circumstances and your finances and everything else, right? You got to do what's best for your own family. But in your particular way, and especially what I think what you're saying is that, you know, women maybe especially have this particular gift for seeing the wisdom in this. If you can find a way to make your home a place of mutual harmony and creating Mm -hmm. together, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just pure consumption, that's a way that you can attempt to kind of reclaim all of these things that have been lost or taken from us. And they are a good and noble work. And sometimes they provide money for the family and that is good. You know, yeah. like that's, that's not what we're, yeah. we're fighting here. Yeah. Cool. Great. All right. Well, that's it. So next week we'll be back with the next chapter. And yeah, that's it for me.